good morning. If you're new around Crossroads or here's our guest today, I wanted to let you know we are studying through the entire book of John in the year 2020. And we're doing that for a reason. We want to learn how to live and love like Jesus. And so we pray you'll join us on that journey. Last week, we got to go to a wedding with Jesus. I don't know if you like going to a wedding. I'm usually up front at a lot of weddings. I get to see lots of things that happen at weddings. But this is a wedding you would not want to have missed. Uh, they had a kind of a catering debacle. They ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother was there. She says, hey, son, do something about this. And so he did. He actually made water into wine, a lot of wine, 150 gallons worth of wine. And the chief butler said, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And that was a crazy moment. And John records that not just to display a miracle, but for a real clear purpose. It was a sign that Jesus really is who he says he is. He's the one, the Messiah, and you should pay attention to him. And so today we pick up with another event in the life of Jesus. If you have a copy of the Bible, turn to John. If you want to use the one in the seat back in front of you or you have a digital device with uh, the, the Bible on it, turn with me to John. We're going to look at chapter 2. Today we're uh, following Jesus and, and it's going to be moving from the fire to, or, to the, or the frying pan to the fire, as they say. Uh, in this moment, it's uh, pretty jam-packed. And this moment's uh, one of the more emotional moments in the life of Jesus. Today we're going to follow him and it's a, one of those other moments where it may not be a miracle, but it's nonetheless a sign that points that Jesus truly is who he says he is. It points to his identity. So let's see what happens. John chapter 2, we'll look at verse 12 to begin. It says this, after this, meaning after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, brothers, and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. So those who had been to the wedding with Jesus, his mother, his brothers, some of his disciples, there were five at this point, they go down to Capernaum. Capernaum's a town that's about 16 miles away from the wedding site. It took them a day to travel there. It's located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And most people think that in Capernaum, Jesus kind of set up his headquarters. Not necessarily a place to go to rule things, but a place to get away. A place that Jesus went with those closest to him on a regular basis to kind of unwind, to retreat, to, to kind of feed his soul so that he could keep focused on his mission. We see that pattern in the life of Jesus, and I think it's one for us to take notice of. You know, as we try to live and love like Jesus, it requires us, maybe even forces us to slow down. To find some moments where we can focus, be intentional about our relationship with God, to make space so that we can live and love like Jesus. That's really the topic of our first teaching night of 2020 that's coming up in just a few weeks. On February 23rd, we're gathering here in the worship center, 6 o'clock that evening. There's child care provided for up to grades 5. And we want to focus that night on how we can learn to, to slow down and be intentional, to make space in our lives where we can live in love like Jesus. On that night, we're actually gonna kick off our 40 days of intentional living that leads up to Easter. We're gonna be learning about the Lenten expression of faith, and I hope that you'll join us. We wanna see how we can lean into these moments where we can continue to grow as we live in love like Jesus. So let's keep reading here in John chapter two and see what happens next. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus was a devout Jew. He practiced all the religious teachings that the Old Testament law required. And he also participated in all the religious expressions, the festivals and the feasts that are mentioned in the Old Testament. 
Right now, my wife and I are reading through the book, uh, the whole Bible. We've done that the last couple of years and we're in Exodus. And just this past week, we, we saw the moment where the Passover was instituted because it was a moment when Jew, in the Jewish history where they were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses was sent by God to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he said, no, many times. And the, God performed these miracle signs to point that he didn't uh, mess around, that he meant business. And Pharaoh kept changing his mind back and forth. And so finally God says, I'm going to send a death angel. And that death angel is going to kill all the firstborn in the whole land of Egypt. And he told the people who were his followers to take blood of a, of a lamb and put it around the doorpost of their home. And that when the death angel came that night, it would pass over those houses. That's what happened. And from that point forward, the Jewish people always celebrated the Passover because they never wanted to forget what God had done for them. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. John records three Passover celebrations that Jesus attended. He went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city, the capital city of Judea, but it was also the, the focal point of the Jewish faith. It's because the temple was there. In Jerusalem, the, the population was maybe between 50 and 70,000 on a normal day. But when there was a religious festival, it swelled to about 250,000. Some estimate that when it was Passover time, there may be near a million people running around the streets of Jerusalem. And that's where the action and the tension start to swell. Look what happens in verse 14 of chapter 2. Uh, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people city, uh, selling cattle and sheep and doves. There were others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Like I said, this is one of the more emotional scenes of Jesus' life and ministry. And all four gospel accounts record Jesus going to the temple and, and cleansing the temple. What's unique, though, is the first three of the gospels, Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they put the Passover and Jesus' cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he dies on the cross. But John places it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. What's the difference? Well, some debate, they think that maybe there were actually two events, that there were two times that Jesus cleansed the temple. But most scholars believe there was really only one event, and John chooses to place it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because he's not worried about providing a chronological order of Jesus' life and ministry. But more importantly, he tells us what his purpose in writing is. Remember, he said this, I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus uh, went that day to the temple because there, there was a moment where a, a, a sign was going to happen to prove that he truly is who he says he is. How Jesus reacted to what happened in the temple that day proves that he is God and from God. The temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just a church on any street corner. It was the center of worship and music, of politics and society, of national celebration and of mourning. It was a place where you would find more animals dead or alive than anywhere else. But more than this, of course, it was where the Jewish people, Jewish people encountered God, Yahweh. 
Yahweh had promised to dwell among his people. It was the focal point of the nation, a, a national way of life. The temple is where people went to encounter God. It was where his presence dwelt. You could say that the temple is where heaven meets earth. This temple, the original temple, however, was constructed by Solomon in 959 BC. David in the Old Testament was actually the one who wanted to build a temple for God, but God forbid him for doing that and said it would be his son who would build the temple. So Solomon constructs this magnificent structure. And after he followed all the instructions that God had given him to build this temple, First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 10 says this, that a cloud filled the temple and the temple was full of God's glory. Well, that temple had been destroyed and rebuilt many a times. And when Jesus arrived at the temple in his day, the temple was full of a lot of things, maybe not even so much of God's glory. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, it was filled with the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition or adoration, prolonged petition, there was noisy commerce. The presence of money changers and animals ticked Jesus off. They were there for good reason. The, uh, the animals were being sold there because it was sort of inconvenient for people traveling from all over the country to come and bring their animals that were required for sacrifice. So they set up this market. It was originally established in the Kidron Valley outside of town of Jerusalem. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day had got involved in the market. They wanted to make a profit off of the selling of these animals. So they moved the market near the temple and we see it even in the temple. The money changers were there for a good reason, because people from all over the Roman Empire would come to worship at the Passover in the temple. And they were there to pay their temple tax. It was, a, it was worth a two days of wages. But people all over the Roman Empire had different types of currency. A lot of these coins had the Roman emperor's picture on it or some other false god. And so those were not coins that were being permitted to pay the temple tax. So they exchanged their money. They were there for a good purpose in theory, but their presence was distracting people from the original intention of the temple, for people to encounter God, for God's glory to be revealed. And Jesus, he, he did something about it. Uh, just like in our world today, everyone was trying to make a buck or get their cut. And so not only were these people filling the temple, but they were there trying to um, cheat people and take advantage of people. And so Jesus grabs some cords. It was probably leashes of animals or maybe some strings that held cages for animals together. He put them into a whip and he starts driving out the animals. He turns over the money changing tables. He kicks the people out. I want you to understand it was not sinful anger that com just compelled Jesus that day. It was righteous indignation. And you might say, well, what's the difference between anger and righteous indignation? Well, anger is defined as a strong feeling of annoyance or, or displeasure or hostility. It's often prideful. It can be a, a defense of self. It can be a retribution for wrong. But righteous indignation, its focus is to stand up for truth to take stand for God's reputation. Somebody said righteous indignation is anger without sin. Nothing enraged Jesus more than irreverence. 
And so Jesus demonstrates his authority as the son of God by ridding his father's house of the impurity. He stands for truth and he fulfills several prophecies about the Messiah who would restore godly worship. John says that his disciples that were with him, who I'm sure were standing there with their jaws dropped and their mouth open going like, wow, what did Jesus just do? John says they believed in Jesus. And they remembered the words of David in Psalm 69 verse 9 that says this, zeal for your house will consume me. That was a prophecy of the Messiah and Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy. You know, there's a couple of applications I want to point to from this moment in the life of Jesus in just a little bit. But right here, I want to stop and just ask a question. And that question is this. How do you respond when you see something that God has created for a purpose being abused or destroyed or even desecrated? As the people of God, we have a responsibility to stand for truth, to speak the truth. And if we're going to live in love like Jesus, sometimes it requires forceful actions. I think we're called to defend the unborn. I think you and I are called to fight human trafficking. I think you and I are called to meet the needs of the poor, to stand with the immigrant. Those are not political issues. Those are matters and people that have always mattered to God and they still do. And so we have to be careful to not go toward the anger side, but go to the righteous indignation side. We have to be appropriate in our response when we stand for truth and speak the truth. After I left Crossroads the first time, I went to be a youth pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. And every summer we would have a summer camp with our kids at a camp that we actually owned. The camp was located at the Hoosier National Forest in southern Indiana. And right at the edge of the camp, three pieces of property came together. The camp's property, Hoosier National Forest, and a piece of property that was owned by a private landowner. That private landowner was not real excited. There were hundreds, if not thousands of kids in his backyard in the summer. And he kind of had this hostile relationship with the camp. One summer, we were teaching on worship. We actually built a tabernacle on the camp's property. We were learning about the Old Testament tabernacle and learning how to worship God in our day. And we we taught a lot about what were false idols and, and false ways of worship so we could compare the two. And one afternoon, a group of students decided to take a hike. They went with one of uh, the staff members on my team. And as they got to the top of the hill where these three pieces of property came together, they noticed that there was a statue. And they thought about the statue and were kind of concerned why the statue would be uh, there in the midst of the camp. And so they looked at it as an idol and they thought the only thing they should do is to smash the idol. And so they did. They took out some some logs and they busted that idol up in about a million pieces. They put some of those pieces in their pocket and headed back down the hill to tell me what had happened. As soon as they started telling me the story, I knew we were in trouble because that statue was actually on the land of the private landowner. And before I could even call the camp owner, that landowner had already called the local media who showed up in his backyard with all kinds of cameras And he was telling a story about what was being taught at the camp, that they were teaching kids, they were brainwashing them to be uh, bigots. They would be, uh, uh, they would be like misguided. They would be antagonistic for people of other faith. The media didn't take the time to uh, get to hear our side of the story, 
But that story made it on the Associated Press wire. Every major city in our country ran the next day a story about those campers smashing idols and being taught bigotry. Our senior pastor had to fly home from vacation to address the issue with the church family as well as with the media. Let's just say it wasn't one of my finest hours of youth ministry. Can we say that? You know, in that moment, the kids had the right heart, but their methods were just a little misguided. I want us to be careful that in our stand for truth, that we don't disobey what Jesus says is the most important commandment equal to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving our neighbor as ourself, even when we disagree with them, even when they disagree with us. We have to be careful to not be disrespectful when we disagree. Jesus says that when people know the truth, it will set them free. But he says people will know us, his followers, by the way that we love. So watch what you say and watch what, how you say it. Please don't focus on winning a point or, 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 or winning an argument, but instead focus on glorifying God. Remember what was said about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14? It says he was full of grace and truth. 100% both. I think that's a good rule of thumb for us to follow when we stand for truth. That we're full of grace and we're full of truth. I have found the only way being full of both of them is possible is through the work of the Holy Spirit. So you and I need to let the Spirit do its work as we stand for truth as we speak the truth, as we're full of grace and truth. Let's go back and see what happens next in this moment in the life of Jesus in verse 18. So some of the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When John refers to the Jews, he's not actually talking about a, a group of, of nationals. He's actually talking about those who were hypercritical and even um, just always antagonizing Jesus. They always questioned his identity and his authority. And so they were there that day. They said, what gives you the right to, to do all this messing in the temple? And they make a pretty good rational um, kind of conclusion. They said, well, if, if you say that you can tear down this temple and build it back in three days, then you certainly are the man. You have the authority to do whatever you want in the temple. But the physical temple is not what Jesus was talking about that day. Ironically, he was talking about his body. The irony there is he never said that he would destroy the temple. He was actually inferring that they would destroy the temple because the religious leaders were the ones that were the instigators of him being arrested and even crucified. And so Jesus is making a prophecy about himself. He was saying, you tear down this temple and it will be rebuilt in three days. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. In that moment, Jesus was replacing the temple. Jesus is now the place where God has chosen for his glory to dwell and be revealed. Just like the wine of justification replaced the water of purification last week, we see that now Jesus is declaring he will replace the temple's sacrificial system as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
the cleansing of the temple, is another sign that points to Jesus being the Messiah. And Jesus cleansing the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God. That's a, it happened at the place that was supremely designated as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. And Jesus is now saying, I'm where heaven and earth connect. This demonstration of zeal for God's house, it was recognized by everyone. And once again, John points out that those who saw what Jesus did, they believed in him because this moment, again, points to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it does so, so that we'll believe in him, so that we'll trust in him, so that we will follow him. I'd like to make a parallel with this moment in the life of Jesus and the temple that I'm confident is not a stretch. In this moment, Jesus is prophesying as well as proclaiming that he is the replacement of the temple. The physical temple Jesus was standing at that day was actually destroyed in AD 70. And his body, as I mentioned earlier, was destroyed by crucifixion, but it was resurrected three days later. Now, people can truly encounter God. They can see his glory revealed and experience him in their lives through Jesus. But the New Testament continues this theme of temple um, as being a place where God's glory dwells and is revealed. There's two other references, two other contexts. The first is this. It's the collective declaring of God's glory as the temple. And that's seen as, as the people of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul unpacks how to worship God appropriately. And he used many metaphors. One of the major metaphors he uses is construction and specifically the construction of a temple. In chapter three, Paul addresses the care by which one should take what, that, that when constructing God's temple. And he makes a powerful statement. He says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do you see the plural words that Paul is using in this moment? When he speaks of us as the temple, he's talking about us, the collection of God's people, a gathering of Christians, the church. It's very similar to the statement Jesus makes in Matthew 18, 20, when he says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. When we gather together in the name of Jesus collectively, the spirit of God, the presence of God is here. And we shouldn't take that lightly or casually, nor should we abuse the awesome privilege that we have. You and I can easily misuse the place where God's presence is, is by, by making it into something that only benefits us or something that it doesn't reflect its intended purposes. We can be destructive. We can be distracting by the words and action we use when we don't like something that's going on. When we gather as the people of God, as God's temple, we should do so reverently, prayerfully, worshipfully, but humbly and sincerely as well. Our purpose in gathering as the people of God, Christ's followers, the church, is to lift Jesus up. And we can't let our preferences or our pride, our politics or even perversity destroy the temple and its purposes. Watching the Super Bowl this past Sunday, it reminded me of some special memories in my life. I've actually got to attend three different Super Bowls. 
I went to the Super Bowl in Indianapolis. I went to the Super Bowl in New Orleans, both of those with my wife. And then the third Super Bowl I went to was in New York. It was actually in New Jersey. And that I went with a couple of friends. Those are really cool experiences. Don't let it sound better than it is because I didn't buy a ticket. I was actually there performing, performing a, a menial task. I sold programs at all three of those Super Bowls and got to watch the game from inside the stadium. Pretty sweet deal. When we went to New Jersey to see the Super Bowl, we actually spent some time in New York City because my two buddies had never been there before. So we got to see the sights and it was really, really cool. Uh, one of the places we went was St. Patrick's Cathedral. When you walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral, it kind of takes your breath away. The ominous feeling in that place is very, very powerful, very moving. You get a sense of the awe of God when you see the magnitude of that place. But I saw a dichotomy when I was there. There were a group of people who were worshiping God, kind of interacting and encountering God's presence. They were huddled together in the middle, middle of that beautiful cathedral. They were surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of onlookers. I'd call them gawkers. They were just kind of looking around at all the art and taking pictures. And they were pretty disruptive to what that place was intended to be. And I thought, how does that uh, reflect how you and I might find ourselves today collected as the gathering of God's people? Are some of you here to encounter God? Are some of you here just to kind of see what happens? You're here more for observation than participation? My friends, when we gather as the people of God, we have one purpose. That's to declare the glory of God. We're here to lift Jesus up so people will be drawn to him. That's what Jesus says in John 12 will happen. That when he's lifted up, he'll draw all people to him. That is our purpose as the people of God. And we must be careful to not do anything that would distract people or prevent people from seeing the glory of God. The sacred mission of the people of God is to declare the glory of God. Later in chapter 14, Paul tells the Corinthians, there's something really cool that could happen. If you're truly worshiping God, Paul says, an unbeliever could come into your gathering, could see how you're experiencing and expressing yourself toward God and be cut to the heart, be convicted of their sin and make a declaration that God is truly in this place. I pray that that would be true of Crossroads Christian Church. That if you're here today and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, by the way that we worship and our focus on bringing glory to God would help you truly feel that God is in this place. That's not the only reference though to the temple of a place where God's presence dwells. It actually, actually refers to, uh, also actually refers to the individual declaring of God's glory. Paul uses the same word temple to speak of the relationship that you and I have as individuals, how we encounter God. And it leads to how we should be characterized as the people of God because we belong to Jesus and his spirit lives in us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul says this, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When you think about the purpose of the temple, that it's the place where God's presence dwells, where it's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you realize that you and I are now that dwelling place, I mean, wow. How should you and I then live? We were purchased, we were redeemed, we we're made right with God, we were cleansed, purified, filled with the Holy Spirit so that we would glorify God. That's our purpose. 
We've been bought for that purpose, Paul says. Peter says the same thing. He speaks in 1 Peter about us being built into a spiritual house, that we're priests, that we are a peculiar people. We are dedicated to the glory of God. And it reminds us that it didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by some cheap goods either. Listen to what he says. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We can't take the temple of God into our control and think that we have the right to use it any way that we want because we don't belong to ourselves. We, as the temple of God, belong to God. He has purchased us for his purposes. And so therefore, we can't do what we want, not physically, not relationally, not even sexually. That's the context of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. When we choose Jesus as Savior, we receive him as Lord. It's not an optional deal. It's not multiple choice. It's a package deal. So therefore, we must let God's glory be revealed in us. That's our purpose. Alexander McLaurin says this, the great purpose of Christianity is to make men like Jesus Christ. As he is the image of the invisible God, we are to be the images of the unseen Christ. So let me close by asking us all a question we need to wrestle with today. What does Jesus need to drive out of your life as the temple so that you can fulfill your intended purpose? If Jesus showed up at your temple individually or if he showed up here in our midst collectively, what would he need to drive out so that we could fulfill our intended purpose? Are you distracted or are you being a distraction to somebody who's here to worship God? Are you being distracted from your original purpose of glorifying God because your life is filled with a bunch of stuff that doesn't glorify him? What does the light of Christ reveal about the darkness of sin that still remains in your heart? Where are you taking advantage of the things of God or others to just get your own way or to fulfill your own pleasure or purposes? How can you take a bolder stand for the truth of Christ in our world today. Or maybe I should ask, how can you take a stand that's more full of grace as you stand for truth? How can you be more full of grace and truth? See, the good news is Jesus has saved us. And through his death and resurrection, our temple has been cleansed of all impurities. And now the only room that we should have room for is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's purchased our freedom. He's rescued us from the slavery to sin. We belong to God and we must show our allegiance to him by glorifying him in everything we do and everything we say. When we do, we reveal the glory of God by living and loving like Jesus. And then people have the opportunity to see and experience the glory of God through us and place their faith in him. And I pray that God would make that true in my life, in your life, in all of our lives as individuals and collectively as the people of God. Let's pray to that end right now. God, thank you for giving us the temple. We're pretty visual people, but none of us have really had the opportunity to go and, and visit that earthly temple that was built by Solomon or others. 
But God, I'm grateful that you just didn't leave us to that physical structure. When you sent Jesus, you teed him up as being the place where your glory would be best revealed. The place where we could most fully experience your presence in our life. Because he is Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is Savior and Lord. Through him, we can experience you to the fullest in our life. And God, I pray that because that's true, because Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, that your glory would be revealed in us and through us, individually and collectively, God. I pray that people would begin to see you clearly because they see and experience you through us. God, I pray that we'd not be um, casual in our worship. God, I pray that we would not be cautious in our words when we speak for truth. I pray that we'd be careful, God, in the way that we love others so that they would feel your love. They would feel your grace and truth. And God, I pray that the purpose for which you created us to bring you glory would come to full completion through your Holy Spirit in each of us and collectively, God, as your church. And I pray that people will come to know you. I pray that through that, through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.